Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by guest speaker Melanie Myatt. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul's letter to Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. It's located in the New Testament of our Red Bibles and on page 187. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Dear God, I pray that our hearts will accept the words of of yours and silence in us any voice but your own, so that upon hearing these words, you may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Ephesians 6, verses 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I am feeling uh, excited today for a couple of reasons. One is that I think it's really cool to celebrate 151 years as a church. And so I am really excited to say happy birthday to the church and to realize what it means to be a part of um, a congregation that has such a long history. And so I think we should all celebrate that. I'm also really excited today because um, tonight we get to do one of my favorite activities of the summer. And that is um, we are going to go see um, Shakespeare in the Park tonight. So every summer the Chicago Shakespeare Theater Company chooses a play and they put it on in parks all over the city. And tonight they are doing it in the park that's close to our house. Um, They're going to do a comedy of errors, and you guys are all invited to join us if you want. It will be a lot of fun. Last year, they did A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is actually a favorite of mine. Um, Instead of doing it in, uh, setting it in Athens, they actually set it in Chicago. So um, one of the characters, Bottom, wore a Cubs hat and a Cubs jersey, and in the middle of the play, they were listening to Pat Hughes on the radio talking about the Cubs game, and then when they held up the scenery changes, it was different L stops. So I thought that was really cool. And so, so with these costumes and the setting, you know, we might have thought that we were actually watching a modern day play, except for one thing. 
when they opened their mouths, we realized we were listening to a play that was written hundreds of years ago. At first, the English seems almost unrecognizable. So every summer, um, before the play starts, an actor comes out to prepare us. And so this actor says, imagine yourselves walking into a dark room and waiting for your eyes to adjust to the dark. If you just wait, you don't even have to turn on a light. Your eyes adjust and you can see much more in the room than you thought at first. And the same is true of your ears with the Shakespeare play. When the play begins, it feels like listening to a foreign language. But if you just give yourself a chance to adjust, and if you watch the actor's expressions and gestures, soon you can understand and follow along with everything happening in the play. And once your ears adapt and you can understand what they're saying, you start to realize that it's not just the language that is different. It's also the content that distances the play from our understanding today. In, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Theseus, the ruler of Athens, tells Hermia that she needs to obey her father because, as he says, to you, your father should be as a god. So Theseus gives Hermia an ultimatum. Marry the man your father has chosen for you or be put to death. In ancient Athens, the uh, city had a law that a child could be put to death for disobedience to their father. My life would be a lot different right now if we had a law like that in place today. <laughs> well, the words from scripture that we read um, today and the last two weeks might seem equally unjust and outdated to us today, particularly to those outside the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. For many of us, these passages do not sit well. They've been used and abused and, and used for really ugly things. When I was preparing for the sermon, I thought, I think I drew the short straw, and I didn't even know we were drawing straws. <laughs> Uh, one of my kids asked me, why don't we just skip over these passages in the Bible? Why preach on it? Well, why do we preach on it? How can we possibly find something redemptive in these passages that have been abused and misused? N.T. Wright says, there's a lot to be said for checking our natural and, let's admit it, sometimes aggressive attitude to passages that strike us as objectionable, and for thinking through why we react like this, and whether we have really understood the passage or not. The Bible itself makes clear that the Word of God is alive and active. These words still have meaning for us today, even if they make us uncomfortable at first. So let's see together if we can let our ears adjust and if we can get to the heart of this passage, and if we can find God's message for us today. As Henry mentioned last week, these passages in Ephesians make up what we call the household code. Martin Luther actually came up with this name for it. He called it the housestuffle, or the household table. So this is the title given to those places in scripture where we get instructions 
to pairs of people. So they have the purpose of bringing order within the home. People like Aristotle and the Hellenistic Jews believed if there was order in the household, then there would be order in society as well. So many of the laws of the day wanted to ensure domestic order so that there would be political and civic order in society. We've talked about this before, maybe you remember, but just as a review, when we hear the word household, we probably think of something like mom, dad, 2.5 kids, and a dog. Thankfully, in my Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, a household with four kids is quite average, so we fit in at least in that area. <laughs> um, Henry was good to remind us last week to make sure we expand our view of household to include singles, couples without children, and other life situations that are different from average. But for the people to whom Paul was writing, a household might actually have been a small village. The head of the household was the father slash husband slash master, and he would have had a role almost like a mayor or a chief of a village. Next in line would be his heir or the firstborn son, and he would be considered second in command while he learned about his future responsibilities as head of the household. And then under the firstborn son would be the wife slash mother. And she might have even had her own quarters separated from the rest of the home so that she wouldn't have any unwanted encounters with other men in the household. And then under the mother were the other children of the household and the master's parents. So culturally, the firstborn son would care for his own parents for the rest of their lives when he took on the leadership of the household. And then at the bottom of the household rankings were servants and sometimes friends of the family who came to live there, and finally were the slaves. As horrifying as it sounds to us, the presence of slavery in Paul's day was as much a part of everyday life as electricity is in ours. This doesn't justify or excuse slavery in any way. Whether we like it or not, it is just a fact that slavery was considered an integral part of society. Again, in order to maintain order and stability, not just in the household, but in larger society as a whole, households in Paul's day had codes, rules, or even laws to regulate daily life. So then the question becomes, is Paul promoting the typical household codes and saying that this is a good way for all of us to live? Or is he attempting to suggest positive, significant change without disrupting the structure that was already in place? I would like to suggest that Paul is actually making some fairly radical statements in his instructions to members of the household. In each of the pairs found in Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul describes a mutuality in the relationship that would not have appeared in other household codes. So when wives are told to submit to their husbands in accordance with society's expectations, husbands are told to love their wives to the degree that they would lay down their own lives for their wives. Children are to obey their parents 
but fathers should not exasperate their children or provoke them to anger. In our passage today, slaves are told to obey and do good work for their masters, but masters are also to treat their slaves with respect and honor without threatening them. For each people group, Paul gives people a chance to find freedom in what would otherwise have been a pretty constricting situation. Instead of being forced to submit under punishment of law, Paul encourages wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Children obey their parents because they belong to the Lord, not because of fear of life-threatening punishment. Slaves serve their masters as if they are serving Christ. Choosing the manner that you submit to someone is actually much more freeing than being told to do it or else. When we began the study of Ephesians, we learned about what it means to find our identity in Christ. When we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. In Christ, we are made alive. We live as those who have been set free. Because of this freedom, we live in gratitude to God. Well, Paul says here that part of our freedom in Christ is living in a way that brings glory to God in our relationships, whether at home or at work. Because we are in Christ, we look different to the world. So how do we show that we are set apart, that we have a different status? We could be like the Amish and dress differently. Instead, we choose to set ourselves apart by our desire to bring glory to God in our words and in our actions. One lesson we can draw from these passages then is that because we are in Christ, because of our new status, we live in a way that brings glory to God in all of our relationships, whether we like those relationships or not. We submit to one another and we serve one another as we would serve the Lord. When I worked at summer camp a lifetime ago, my job was to oversee the maintenance staff. We had to clean 15 toilets and urinals every single day. And I always reminded the staff to clean those toilets as to the Lord. We would try to pretend Christ might be the next person to use that toilet. It didn't make the job any easier or any more fun, but we all did it with a better attitude. I hope that we can do whatever we do as to the Lord this week. But also, I don't want to overlook the fact that this passage is about slavery. We do not in any way endorse slavery or the people who defend or sanction slavery. So what do we do with structures and laws that don't seem to reflect God's best plan for humanity? What can we as believers do not only to work for God's glory, but to work for God's kingdom to take shape here on earth? I hope that you will wrestle with that question this week as much as I have been wrestling with it. But I'm going to share with you a few of my thoughts 
while telling you that I am still a long way from having definitive answers. I think that Paul gives us a model in this passage. Paul does not blow up the system, ever. No matter what rulers or governors or leaders that Paul encounters, he always speaks with respect. He speaks the truth, but he speaks with respect. We have so many reasons to be indignant today. There are so many policies and programs and laws that we just don't agree with. And our indignation can make us bitter or outraged or even violent. So what do we do with our indignation? Do we still live as people of the light? Do we bring glory to God with our words and actions, even as we seek to shine God's light on injustice and hatred? On July 16, the House of Representatives debated a resolution to condemn the president's tweets about four congresswomen. Nancy Pelosi argued that, these, that the tweets were racist and should be condemned. Apparently, this violated a House rule of order. Thomas Jefferson came up with a manual of parliamentary rules that have been used by the House since the 1800s. These rules of order have been upheld by the House for hundreds of years as a way to ensure a fair and democratic process. Like the Household Code, Jefferson's manual has been viewed as a way to maintain order and stability in what I'm sure you can imagine could be a chaotic environment. One of these rules is that a speaker on the House floor should refrain from referring to the president as having made a racist or bigoted statement. After an hour-long debate during which speakers from both parties broke the rules in Jefferson's manual, acting chairman Emanuel Cleaver from Missouri was told to make a ruling. Instead, he dropped the gavel and declared, I abandon the chair. He said, we don't ever, ever want to pass up an opportunity, it seems, to escalate. And that's what this is. We just want to fight. I would like to read a lengthy quote from something he posted on his website after the event. I think his words are a challenge to us as well as we think about how to be people of the light in the midst of these times of strong opinions, discord, and hatred. He says, I've grown increasingly frustrated with the childish rancor of our public discourse. Our inability to conduct ourselves in a civil and respectable fashion has paralyzed the most powerful government in the history of the world. I have spent my entire life working with people of all faiths and stripes in an effort to solve real-world problems with concrete solutions. But never have we been this divided and this unwilling to listen to countering opinions or accept objective truths. I call on all my colleagues in all of America to listen more and talk less, to show compassion 
for those who are in pain and to resist the temptation to fight when others wish to escalate. Let me repeat his last challenge. He asks us to listen more and talk less, to show compassion for those who are in pain and to resist the temptation to fight when others wish to escalate. I think this challenge is a good way for us to think about what it means to glorify God while working hard to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. So this week, let's live into Paul's challenge to us to bring glory to God in all our relationships. Let's watch and pray for opportunities to listen more and talk less to show compassion for those who are in pain, and to resist the temptation to fight when others wish to escalate. Thank you.